Welcome to Dangerously Likely. I'm Caleb. I'm Terrell. And I'm Torrance. And today we're Dangerously Likely to talk about redistricting. Let's go about the phone with this week's headlines. Okay, y'all. So I got kind of a wild story to start us off with today, courtesy of Bloomberg News. So currently, climate change is melting the permafrost in the Arctic part of Russia, which represents an even bigger threat to climate change and global warming since it is estimated that 240 billion tons of methane and carbon dioxide gases could be released from the permafrost alone by the year 2100. So Russian scientists believe that they have an answer to stopping this, and it's woolly mammoths. Um, Their plan is to restore super productive pasture ecosystems in the Arctic, where dozens of woolly mammoths used to graze like 14,000 years ago. Um, but how how would this stop the permafrost from melting? It was kind of my question I was, I was reading this. As, as, as I was reading this, the theory goes like this. Animals tramping down on the snow in winter will slow down the permafrost melting, and it will protect the soil that allows grass to grow in the summer. The grass in plant life reflects sunlight, which cools the temperatures. Emissions would be offset by the positive impact on the ecosystem. Currently, they are testing out different types of grazing animals, such as horses, deer, and buffalo, and the effect that they have on the environment. The Russian scientists are working with a Boston company named Colossal, which plans to birth the first woolly mammoth calves in the next four to six years. The company plans to create woolly mammoths by inserting the mammoth DNA into the genome of Asian elephant cells. Of course, this theory isn't proven. Um, but I do want to get your thoughts on this. Um, they're estimating that this will help absorb about 20% of global greenhouse gas emissions if everything goes right. Hmm. Uh, uh, Torrance, let's start with you. What do you think about this plan? Um, thank you for coming to me. And, I, and Terrell, I don't, I don't know if it's on the tip of your tongue right now, but I am so excited about this because this is literally a Madam Secretary episode come to life. Um, I don't know if you <laughs> recall that episode, Terrell. Yes, um, I we're do. Just like this I literal exact do. thing. Yeah, was was what was floated as the fix for this exact issue. And it, but but I think yep. it was actually more specific to Russia, right? Like the the Russian, um, uh, Arctic, and, Arctic and Russia. Yeah, in Siberia. Excuse me. Um. So when when I saw this story uh, today, I was like, oh, this is this is actually pretty amazing. I think, um, kind of facetiously, this is going to go either like really really well. Um, and be incredible, or we are going to have Jurassic Park on our hands. So um, <laughs> that's also <laughs> like, a great option. I, mean, I don't know why you said it as if that was the the negative in the situation. I mean, I mean, it's not. I mean, it, I, I don't know. I just watched the Jurassic Park like like little teaser trailer today, and I mean, large uncontrollable animals aren't exactly like good for the humankind. But uh, that's that's just me being a jokester. Honestly, I think that innovation and technology is important. I think that. Um, at this point, we understand what the detriment of some of these um, long-term effects of um, climate change are going to be. And at some point, we do have to start trying things that seem unorthodox, that seem unconventional, that seem maybe impossible to uh, tackle issues that I think that some people think aren't real, that are so elusive to to reality, um, that we kind of have to match that with the same kind of uh, maybe elusive grand ideas to fix them. Mm-hmm. I don't disagree with anything you said. Wow, this is a first, guys. <laughs> <laughs> you heard it here first. Yeah, I don't know. Like at first, I was like, 
we're literally creating woolly mammoths makes me feel a little bit like we're messing with something we shouldn't. Um, but I mean, it's quite the creative uh, solution to some of the biggest problems we face today. So it'll be very interesting to watch this play out. In an effort to curb the impact of rising inflation as a result of the mismatch between supply and demand coming out of the pandemic, the Biden administration announced on Tuesday that it would release 50 million barrels of oil from the nation's strategic oil reserve to offset gasoline prices for everyday Americans. The Biden administration has been working with countries across the world over the past several weeks to address the rising price of oil and is taking this action in parallel with other major energy-consuming nations, including China, India, Japan, the Republic of Korea, and the United Kingdom. The statement released by the administration said that of the 50 million barrels being released by the U.S. Department of Energy, 32 million barrels will be released over the next several months on an exchange and will be returned to the oil reserve in years ahead. The Biden Biden administration officials said, quote, the exchange is a tool matched to today's specific economic environment where where markets expect future oil prices to be lower than they are today and helps provide relief to Americans immediately and bridge to that period of expected lower gas prices. Terrell, Caleb, given the state of Biden's polling and the rising cost of common goods, what are your thoughts on this move by the administration? Um, Terrell, I'll go to you first. Um, I think something that's being missed out in this is the fact that this took extreme coordination globally for the administration to find multiple partners worldwide. Um, And it's a challenge to OPEC. It's an understanding that there is an entity that controls natural resources and gas supply for the world that has not responded well to the pandemic. And they are stepping into their space now to really take the right steps to one, alleviate that, but also show that there's enough coordination worldwide to challenge this authority. What are your thoughts, Caleb? Yeah. You know, I think that um, gas prices are this weird thing that like, I don't think, presidents have as much control over as maybe they would like to. Um, but the public doesn't really know slash maybe understand that. And I think that if you look in like years past in polling, like approval ratings are like usually directly correlated to (laughs) where gas prices are. Um, so I think that this is a good thing. Um, I was also listening to a podcast the other day from with an economist who was talking about how our oil reserves are like at their max right now. They're basically spilling over. So it, it's not a big deal if we use some of it right now for this direct issue. And I think um, if it goes as planned, uh, uh, I think Americans are going to, just as they blamed Biden for gas prices that are high, they'll be happy to see them be lower, hopefully uh, long term rather than short term. Yeah, and I just wanted to I'll add to what you said. One. Well, I wanted to say what you, I mean, yeah, I would say that public opinion is going to be, uh, it'll be interesting to see how that unfolds, because I think that the major issue right now specific to the polling as well is that, that the average American doesn't understand how the market works well enough to understand how supply chain is affecting Um the, the rise of inflation and also doesn't take into account that we're not just the we're not the only country on planet earth who's facing or seeing record inflation most of our peers are seeing record inflation as well um but i wanted to point that to your point terrell about the these powerful nations coming together to kind of challenge the um authority of opec or or the decisions of OPEC, um, I think, are certainly working because over the in that same uh, statement that was issued from the Biden administration, they cited that over the several, past several weeks since uh, 
knowledge of these conversations became public, we've already seen a 10% decrease in gas prices overall, likely due to this um, impending you know, plan to, to release some oil from the reserves. Absolutely. And my pushback on your point, Caleb, isn't so much that um, these won't be tied to his polls, right? Everyone knows that a president's approval rating is how are Americans affecting their everyday life. But you've already seen the conservative talking points that by releasing this oil from that um, reserve, he's weakening America on the national stage and going to set us up for failure if there's another catastrophe. So like the talking points are already there. Um, and I just think that we are in an unfortunate time frame where it doesn't matter how good a president is or isn't, um, one party will like them and one party will not. Oh, I totally agree with that, Terrell. I think that, yeah, of course, the talking points are already there. As with every issue, they're always going to be there from the Republican Party. Um, but I also think that that this could be a good talking point for Democrats in the Biden administration going forward as well. So it's just going to be interesting to see how it plays out, I think. Yeah, I would say I think taking the action, right, like not just allowing the um, impact of the, the mismatch between supply and demand and the rising inflation, just trying to explain it away as a part of the of, of the um, open market economy that we have. But I think that taking this action to show we are trying to do something, we recognize the issue, we're trying to do something to offset those prices should hopefully, I think, help a bit because clearly, obviously, trying to educate the public on why these things were occurring was not helping at all. And while the U.S. continues to focus on oil prices, let's go around the world in under a minute. Again, don't call me out. I shoot for as close as a minute as possible. It's sometimes a stretch. Um, a little bit of fun news, kind of piggybacking off of your story, Caleb. Back in October, I didn't learn this until a TikTok recently, um, Australia started vaccinating hundreds of koalas against um, chlamydia, if y'all didn't know. Koalas actually, almost every koala has chlamydia, and um, it's actually really detrimental to them. It um, causes them to go blind, similar to as it does with humans, but also it um, diminishes an enzyme that they have in their gut that allows them to eat aloe, which is one of their main food sources, and will ultimately lead to them dying. Um, so scientists are vaccinating them to see if this will hopefully keep the koala population alive and well. Just a fun story. Also, as we again talk about oil and gas, Russia is making headlines outside of that arena as Ukraine begins to sound the alarms that there is a potential threat on the horizon. Um, recent troop movements by Russia near Ukraine's border has drawn more concerns from Kiev and the U.S. as they start to consider what a potential attack could look like on Ukraine. I don't know if everyone remembers back in 2015, 2016, um, Ukraine invaded, or Russia invaded Ukraine and annexed a part of their territory to which the global community kind of looked the other way. So there's a lot of concern and apprehension looking back on the past. And we'll be right back. Okay, y'all, so right now, 
17 states have finished redrawing their congressional maps, and the Democrats have gained four seats in the House, and Republicans have also gained four seats, and the number of competitive districts has fallen by four seats. So why is this important, or how did we get here, right? So when we talk about redistricting, I think that the a word that we hear most commonly is gerrymandering. Um, and how does gerrymandering occur? So in America, we ha- take the census every 10 years to... Um, update our numbers on population in what states and what districts. And then um, every 10 years, we redraw our di- our congressional maps. Um, most states redraw their, their congressional maps in their state legislature. So the state legislature and whoever controls it proposes um, a redistricting map, and then it is passed by that state legislature and signed by its governor. Or like Michigan, in which we passed a, a ballot measure in 2018 um, to add this to our state mm-hmm. constitution, that to avoid gerrymandering, where a partisan party who would control that state legislature gets to make those decisions, we have opted in as voters to have a nonpartisan redistricting commission that has to agree on a map um, and is not controlled by a partisan legislature. So those are the two main ways that, that redistricting is um, is done, but primarily it is done through the state legislature, where in America or in the U.S., most states, um, the majority of states are occupied by a Republican-controlled legislature, which is why we've seen so many um, kind of anti-voting bills um, and voter suppression bills since mm-hmm. the 2020 election. So, Caleb, tell us a little bit more about what's going on with the redistricting efforts across the country. And I would like to add, Torrance, one of the big reasons why this is such a huge topic right now is directly correlated to the Supreme Court. Um, back in 2013, the Supreme Court ruled on a narrow majority, five to four, um, that the heart of the Voting Rights Act of 1965 was unconstitutional, not on the basis that it had been doing things wrong for multiple years, but actually on the basis, as the Chief Justice reports, uh, or stated, because our country had changed. While any racial discrimination in voting is too much, Congress, as he claims, has to ensure that the legislation that was passed is remedied to current situations, not those of the past. So for our listeners, what that all means is at one point in time, there were avenues to challenge these maps and say that based on racial discrepancies or just inaccuracies and splits amongst counties, um, these maps should be unconstitutional and the Supreme Court could actually rule and side based on this legislation that those were remedies. Um, However, our current Supreme Court found that that law was out of date and needed to be updated. And then not too long after in 2019, followed up and actually challenged the complete and total premise that the Supreme Court should even be involved in partisan gerrymandering. But Caleb, tell us how we, why this is important now. What's happening? <laughs> yes. Uh, thank you both for all that context. So kind of going back to what I said before, how Democrats have gained four seats, Republicans have two, but the com- number of competitive districts has fallen by four seats. Like, of course, um, on that, on its face right there, there's been 17 states who have finished their congressional map. And it's like, okay, so we're expecting Republicans um, who control a lot more districts and states than Democrats do to have more seats. But on its face, you know, those don't seem like bad numbers. However, they're just like a ton of other states and districts um, that Republicans control. And we could see them take the lead here as more states finish their newly drawn maps. Uh, several states have already proposed maps that take Democrats mostly out of the equation compared to the last decade. Uh, notably, however, Texas Republicans actually took the strategy of giving Democratic incumbents uh, safer districts in order to make sure that their own districts were safe. 
um, instead of taking away more Democratic seats. And before I kind of move on with that, what do you guys think of the strategy that Republicans took in Texas? And do you think it will be copied in other states as well? I would say, like, w- w- I think it was an interesting play. Um, it concerns me a little bit, only because I don't think that, I think that as the party who who should be anti-gerrymandering and being pro-nonpartisan redistricting commissions across the board, as we supported the H.R. 1 um, for the People Act, which would have instituted nonpartisan commissions across the country in every state, um, that we shouldn't be dealing. However, I will say that, you know, politics are politics and also reality is reality, that the, the option that they had were make this deal or almost certainly lose their seats. Um, I just think that this was a, a, this was unique. It allowed both parties the opportunity to make a deal that benefited them both. Um, but when when the other option was that either way, the te- Texas, the citizens of Texas were not going to win, um, because if you've seen any, if you've seen the new the new maps, they are deeply disturbing. Um, I hardly believe that this is what congressional representation was expected to look like when our founding fathers found um, this country. Um, they all look like various uh, pieces of chips um, with no with no actual shape, and it's. I mean, it's really concerning to me for democracy, in my opinion. But nonetheless, I think the context of that decision and the deal that was made was was about choosing, um, having having little good options and choosing the best one. I do think it's interesting that um, Texas is not unique in how it drew its map. It actually stole some of these ideas from Illinois, specifically Chicago, um, in how to use urban areas and find different ways to split up regions and spaces. But for me, the most concerning part is we're we're radicalizing our legislature. We're no longer allowing for these opportunities to have congressional representatives challenged um, or really have an argument of ideas. We are making districts more red and more blue and giving light to the further fringes of both parties rather than a round a, a well-rounded debate around policy. My thoughts are that Despite, I think that I despite I think obviously right the partisan behavior that occurs every time we we redraw maps because it feels like that's the the game of survival. Uh, specifically, I think for the Democratic Party, who who has for a very long time now, at least for the past two decades, been in the minority as far as who controls state legislatures because that's kind of been the the ground game for Republicans is because they understand that to be um, an important power, especially as they were looking towards an electorate that was that was becoming more diverse, more liberal, less likely to vote for the Republican Party. Um, but I think that this is certainly this has certainly been the nuclear option on top of the the big lie and the the voter suppression laws. Um, but I think that it speaks to the growing issue in our country that our policy debates are not um, have nothing to do with where where, where public pin, opinion lies, right? Like we we constantly have conversations here about different bills that have overwhelming majority support and struggle to get through Congress. Uh, I think that what you're saying is very correct, Terrell. That we are exacerbating an existent partisan issue in our country that is that is slowly. Um, Solely taking the, the the representative power away from 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 citizens and from Americans, and are are putting more power into um, our elected officials to make decisions that that quite frankly they have a lot of a lot to benefit from selfishly from a, from a personal perspective. Um, so I think again, I, this is an opportunity to call on um, you know 
Congress to pass HR one, the For the People Act. I just think that we're on a slippery slope, and nothing. Re- you guys know how I feel about vote- voting. You know, I could go on about it for a very long time, but it's because I truly believe that it, it is the most important thing that we do as a democracy, and obviously because it's the basis of our democracy. That the long, the more that we slide down this road, um, the more dangerous and more fragile our, our democracy comes. And I think, I, quite frankly, as we continue down this road, the more likely a modern revolution in this country becomes. Not to be like inflammatory in any way. I just think that when you take the power away from the people, what do you expect it to happen at some point? Because, you know, I don't know if you guys have been following, and sorry to be long-winded about this, that the uh, European think tank that has commonly put out um, like who, who like ratings on democracies across the world, that we were just mm-hmm. for the first time listed as a backsliding democracy, but that one of the really positive points of that report that they issued was that despite our backsliding of democracy, that civic engagement as at a halt all-time high and very healthy after following a lot of the, I mean, both sides, right? Following the the the, the protests um, last summer and then even, not that it's what we would like to see, clearly civic engagement is, is, is alive and well on the right as well. So as a democracy, those kinds of behaviors are promising about what the people can do to affect change. But I think that when it comes to to get us back to the point of, of redistricting and our, and our congressional representation who, who writes policy and bills to pass in the law, it's a real concern. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I agree with that, Torrance. I there's like a million different ways that we could take this conversation. Um, I'm kind of remembering this conversation I had with Terrell a while ago of like, why don't we just expand the house? Um, and I think the basis of that was because Ugh, one there's representative. No seats left. Also true. That is true. There are no there are no seats, which is a big a big issue in representation in this country today. But also, <laughs> but, adding more people doesn't fix the problem. Well, I think I think the angle I was looking at Terrell was specifically one representative um, equals about seven hundred thousand people in this country, or maybe it's more. Mm-hmm. I don't quite remember, but um, it's like in most other like democracies or whatnot, that number is significantly smaller per representative, and I think it just kind of. I don't think that's like a solution to the answer by any means. It might be part of it though. And kind of going back to like, I think it just kind of fits in what the argument you are making Torrance is that we're kind of like rated as this backsliding democracy and the power is kind of being slowly taken out of the people's hands over time. And I think that is part of it. Mm -hmm. Just for numbers sake, it is 747,000 for every one member of the house of representatives. They represent 747,000 Americans. And that's not even like super accurate because I think this was another thing I wanted to, or not completely accurate because I wanted to throw this out there um, for the sake of conversation is that when we're talking about redistricting, we also have to take into account that there are six states that only have one congressional district. It is the entire state um, because those all almost, I think every single one of those states I'm thinking off the top of my head have less than the 700 and something thousand that you just mentioned, like North Dakota, and those are Alaska, Delaware, mm-hmm. Montana, North Dakota, South Dakota, Vermont, and Wyoming, um, in which North Dakota, South Dakota, Montana, Alaska, I'm assuming Delaware as well, um, all have less than, or somewhere in like the four to five hundred thousand people in the entire state. Um, so these are states with one congressional district, but two senators. So like, don't even get me started on that. Yeah, I was going to say, it sounds like you're more in the camp of let's abolish it all. I mean, I wasn't saying that. I was just saying, make it make sense, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there are 80 districts combined between California and Florida. Florida, 80. 
and those have one. So, I mean, we just have a represent, and we talk about this a lot on the pod with various things. We have a representative power issue in this country. Yes. So kind of moving on. So talking about how some states do this process, you know, um, obviously some states that are Democrat or Republican controlled, the state legislator just draws the map um, and it has to pass all the houses and the governor has to sign off on it for it to go into effect for the next decade. But some states also have uh, bipartisan commissions mm-hmm. um, and, and, you know, those bipartisan commissions, if they don't come to an agreement in a certain time, uh, the state Supreme Court may have to make the map instead if they don't come into agreement by a certain deadline. This is already happening in a couple states like Virginia, Washington, and right now it's predicting that Wisconsin will be that way too. And then you have other states that have independent commissions um, to deal with redistricting. And many of these states are actually Democratic-controlled states, which has sparked some backlash from Democratic strategists because their argument is that, well, Republicans right now are doing anything to win. And now is not the time to take like the moral high ground on this issue. We should um, try to keep the house at all costs. And I kind of wanted to throw that back to you yeah. two. Uh, what do y'all think about that argument? See, it's a tough question. I personally, <laughs> I personally hate that talking point because it's the whole an eye for an eye makes the world blind. Like, yes, we could play the exact same game that, Republican states and Republican legislatures are playing. And honestly, in the states that they would play it, they would do it better and they would pretty much build a majority that could not be removed. Like look at California, for example. California is, what, two counties away from being essentially a completely Democratic represented state because of one, just shifts in populations, but two, because of how districts have been drawn. And I'm pretty sure that's an exaggeration. So if anyone calls me out on it, you are completely right. Um, it's more than two. But the issue here isn't what party deserves to be in power. The issue here, and I'm sure Torrance will piggyback on this, is um, what makes our democracy healthy and what's important for the health of the country. And that is to remove partisanship out of this process be mad at the Democrats all you want for doing what was right and doing it way too early, but at least they're setting the stage to demonstrate to other places how to do it right, rather than still playing the same game that the Republicans are. So we're caught in an even bigger conundrum of how do we even get out because we don't know any other way. Yeah, absolutely. And you know that I agree because it's when I think that those Democratic strategists, it's not like they don't have some sort of like, so there's not, it's not like there's not a basis for having that opinion right now specific to the circumstances that we are in but to me that's a part of the problem right that that's them not seeing the forest for the trees the issue is not that we can just decide to have that opinion when it suits us that makes us just as bad as them do we mm-hmm. as a party do we believe that the that this should be a nonpartisan process do we think that every vote should count do we think there should be proportional representation as was intended in, in the constitution or do we want to change our mind because we think it's going to help us save our our um, congressional majority? That that's that to me is why I get frustrated with the Democratic Party just just as much sometimes because it's playing the political game instead of taking the high ground. And you can't say we're going to take the high ground this time and look at us. We're the party of doing all this good, right? And we're not we're not we're not go- going to extremism, etc. But then make comments like this 
that fly in the face of all of the the integrity that we brought to the table in the policy debates that we've been having. I think that mm-hmm. this sucks, and I understand why someone might say that and would wish that we could take use our same partisan power in states that we control to to more to level the playing field. But it makes us just as bad as them. So stand on your stand on your principles, have some integrity, and and run the damn races. And if we lose, we lose. But the thing is, we have to keep going to the people. At, at which yeah. point, like I, I'm sorry, I, I wanted to say this earlier that it's it's immoral and unethical to take the position that they have, to, which is to freely use their partisanship to affect, uh, you know, representative control in Congress. And I think that this is this is this is not policy or or an election. This is history. How do you want history to look at you? So I think that we 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 have to we have to make the decisions that might even be um, to our own detriment. And fly in the face of our own goal, because we have democratic principles, not democratic, uh, you know, policy positions when it suits us. I see you, Michelle Obama. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, Thank no, you. I mean, I one hundred percent agree with that. I um, I will say that I do understand the argument. If you're a democratic strategist, you'd probably be looking at this and being like, "This is quite the time that we're deciding to take this moral high ground when." the threat of of what the Republican Party offers is quite real. Um, so I, I do I do see that side of the argument, but I also agree that like we can't have we can't have it both ways and we gotta do we gotta do what's right here. And and the right thing to do is to make this an independent commission at the end of the day. Yeah. And in some situations it I think there's this argument too of, well, we have to move to every state doing an independent commission and that's going to right all the wrongs. In some states, we can say that an independent commission, it just doesn't fit that state. Montana is a great example. They're only going to have one congressional district drawn at the end of the day. You can leave that with the legislature. Yes, you might be frustrated and as if Montana ever grows, actually Montana has two, so I'll use North Dakota. Um, if North Dakota ever grows, maybe you'll look to build out and set up a new process for them there. But these are important pieces to understand that at the end of the day, what I think we all are arguing for is not so much that there's a one solution fits all policy, but more so that people need to be a part of their process. People need to be a part of the civic engagement piece. And if that means about a ballot initiative like was in Michigan that voted and said, yes, we want to automatically be registered to vote. We want to have an independent commission. We want these things because we value our democracy. Then let that be the initiative. Um, And if that angers a specific party, I think that tells you more about one, their ill-fated use of being a party that cares about people's choice. Um, except for when it comes to women's rights and ovaries. And two, they're concerned that they're representing a minority when, again, if you put it to the people, they'll vote how they want to vote. So that's my piece. I, I wanted to like touch on kind of one one last thing um, when it comes to this uh, conversation that we're having. And like some maps are that specifically ones from Republican controlled states um, are already being challenged in court. And we know over the last decade that, that some of the maps uh, drawn 
um, from 2010 were, you know, they were, they had to be redrawn because courts said they had to. And so like right now, North Carolina's redrawn maps are being challenged in court on the basis of racial gerrymandering. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to kind of throw this question out to the both of you. Um, there will probably be court cases, maybe even some states that have to redraw their maps, but is that something that the Democratic Party can actually rely on? Well, I mean, if we have to look at the state of the justice system in our country, uh, even just over the last week, I would say, uh, and knowing how many how many courts have been packed by the Republican administration um, that just left office, I, I can't say that we should have a lot of hope about what a court is going to do in regard to a partisan gerrymandered redistricting map, but I mean, I, I, I don't want to speak too soon about what I think that a court's going to do. I'm just saying that in reference to what Terrell said earlier regarding um, the decision handed down by the Supreme Court that has largely affected uh, the redrawing of districts, this certainly is concerning, is what I'll say. <laughs> And it's important to note, too, that the reason they are making these arguments on racial bias is because the Supreme Court in 2019 ruled in Rucho v. Common Cause that um, the state Supreme Court can't be concerned with partisan gerrymandering. They essentially washed their hands from ever having to be involved in that, which allowed for these radical maps that we see in Texas, this huge concern in Tennessee about if the state will split Nashville in half for the first time in the state's history, purely because it's an urban epicenter and because it represents a minority population. So I think even in knowing that, Caleb, your your point of should the Dems feel some sigh of relief that they have this option tells you that they shouldn't. Um, the Supreme Court's already made very clear that they view these issues to reside in and need to be rectified by Congress. And the issue is those issues can't be fixed by a Congress that's being poisoned by the problem itself. So no, I don't have hope. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I feel like this is one of those expect the worst, but maybe hope for the best uh, situations. Um, you know, if something gets thrown out and they have to, a state has to redraw their lines and maybe they're a little bit better at the end of the day, but you know, you just can't, you can't, as a party, expect that to happen um, at all. It's a lot of steps that you have to you have to jump through, a lot of hoops you have to jump through to get to that point. One thing I would also add that I think we can't walk away from here is we're talking a lot about the congressional maps that end up impacting our House of Representatives, um, but this issue also directly impacts our state legislatures. I know in Idaho, for example, um, a constitutional amendment was passed right when I started um, at Boise State, and that amendment limited how many um, representative districts there are for the state legislature. And under the commission, they've drawn lines that have removed some pretty sensible um, conservative voices and caused some really interesting fights for contested spots as we move forward. So again, kind of leaning into that, you're creating the fringe um, majority rather than the real consensus of the state. And I think that's important for states like Michigan. Obviously, I'm leaning on the two states that I've lived in because I care about them the most. But Michigan's map came out for their state legislature, 
And while people are really frustrated because it gives the Democrats a little bit more wiggle room in some contested areas, it also does a really good job of following county districts, which Michigan has never done from a state legislative perspective. I think Nevada has a really interesting map because it's doing some weird things in Las Vegas for the state legislature following the complete and total shit show that was the 2020 election. So as we talk about all this, if this is a topic that I think interests any of our listeners, um, definitely understand that it's a lot more local to y'all. It's not just a congressional federal government piece um, for these states that have their legislator draw these maps. They also are drawing the exact districts that they're going to represent too. And that's huge. And we'll be right back. Take us on a tangent, Torrance. All right. So I I do apologize ahead of time to the listener because I'm sure that this is something that you've been inundated with from the media over the past week. But um, I will spare making any personal judge or making any judgments about Kyle Rittenhouse as a person. Um, I have my own opinions, but when it comes to the law and it comes to this case where he was acquitted uh, for the murder of two people and injuring a third um, when he brought his AR-15 to um, Kenosha, Wisconsin last year, um, the, the ruling that was made by, by this jury, the, the, putting his hand on the scale that, that was occurring from this judge who has run unopposed um, for that for that judgeship, I think, if I'm remembering correctly, since like 1987, he's run unopposed, mm-hmm. um, that this trial was a, a stunning um, example of how unequal our, our justice system is. I was reading an article earlier about a, in a civil rights um, lawyer was mentioned saying that this represents... A, a very stark difference in the way that Americans look at uh, our justice system based on the color of their skin. Mm-hmm. That for a an African American or a person of color to to even fathom or think for any amount of time that there would ever be a scenario where this they they could have committed these these acts, we could have went across straight state lines under age with an assault rifle that wasn't theirs that they were not legally allowed to have and shot three people, killing two and could possibly be acquitted for any reason. I mean, for literally any reason, let alone self-defense, because the criminality would have been in the color of their skin, is unfathomable. And and, and as a, a person of color, I truly feel that way. I, I cannot imagine any scenario ever where that, would, where that would have occurred. And I think that aside from any personal opinions about Kyle Rittenhouse, it is important for us to look at this damn trial and see how dangerous it is, the precedent that it sets in our country for people to feel like they have the right to take up arms, to go to a a protest, which is people exercising their First Amendment right, their First Amendment right, that they could that they could go and kill someone in an act of quote unquote self-defense. By putting themselves in a in, in a position to have to defend themselves, if that's even something we want to buy into in this argument, this sets a dangerous precedent, and it speaks to the larger issue in our country of the radicalization of politics, the radicalization of the right more specifically. And I'll say this, I hope that that young man takes this chance and really fucking grows and learns and does something with his life, because he's already taken two. He's already taken two people's lives. And I think that we as a country have to think really hard about what this says about who we are, um, what this says about our, our jury trial process, 
and the danger that could come, the real danger, the, the, the murders that could be done in self-defense to people who are protesting and being called rioters, etc. I just think that we have to take a long, hard look at who we are and, and what this what precedent this sets for us as a country, because it's it's quite frankly terrifying. Terrell, can you take us on a tangent? How am I supposed to follow up after that? Because there's so many things I want to respond to, right? Well, cheer uh, me up, please. <laughs> I, I do want to just add to that piece. From a legal standpoint, I do firmly believe that it happening in Wisconsin made a difference. Not a big one, but did make a difference. And I, I echo what I mentioned in the lead story. Pay attention to your local politics and pay attention to your local laws. The way self-defense is written into Wisconsin, Wisconsin statute is egregious. And I 100% believe that if Kyle Rittenhouse was an African-American male, we would not even be talking about how weird of a law it is because they wouldn't have given him the time of day. Um, but also, Kyle Rittenhouse just went on um, Tucker Carlson and said that he firmly believes that Black Lives Matter and that the judicial system is inappropriately targeting people of color. So here's where we are in modern day. Um, I'm going to start and jump into a happy note for a tangent real quick and just give a huge shout out to Adele for re-entering the music world with a piece of work that is truly art that is a true testament to a parent that cares about their child who wants their child to fully understand very complicated topics and very complicated things but also an individual who is identifying and seeing their self-worth and understanding who they are and who they want to be uh, if you didn't pick it up obviously i'm talking about the 30 album I've been listening to it non-stop i think the taylor swift Full Moon with the Red Album on top of the Adele Retrograde with 30 was like the emotional reset we need. Um, yeah, I'm just in love with it. I can see you want to say something, Torrance, and I'm not going to hold you like what you got. Well, well, I also wanted to say this is not like a crit criticism, but just for the sake of Tay Tay, I want to make sure that we remember this is Red Taylor's version, um, not just good old fashioned Red, because correct, we, we got to give our girl her due. Um, but I am with you. This, this Adele album was had a meteoric um, arrival. It was, I think that, I mean, I honestly, from a, just a marketing perspective, the way that this was rolled out was, I mean, just insanely good with mm -hmm. the one night only performance on CBS here, the release of the album, and then the audience with um, an audience with on ITV in, in England, where she was surrounded by, you know, her, her peers and her, her fellow Englishmen and women. I just think that the rollout of this album on top of how incredible the artistry of this piece of work is um, and the vulnerability that she shows, like she always has, but I think just even to it, she, another degree with this album is yeah. spectacular. And I am so, so grateful. Um, so grateful for, for this piece of work and the beautiful music um, that she has given us and, and to tack on just a little bit to the Taylor thing. I want to say you know, congrats to Tay for, for now having the, um, longest runtime number one um beating out don mcclain's american pie which is a true true classic and one of my favorite <laughs> songs of all time with her 10 minute version of all too well um yes. i just yeah good good time for music and women all around right now and also one thing i just want to add to adele too on this little tangent is 
I want to give her props for being honest that she doesn't give a damn about the TikTok trends and the TikTok soundbites. When she made this album, she was making it from who she was. She was making an art piece that she felt good about and not something that was going to um, be trendy for a while. And I just, I really appreciated how she worded it in her interview that she feels music isn't being made for the 30-some millennials um, anymore. It's being targeted to a younger generation as missing out on a key block. And obviously, as we talk about millennials and our generation all the time on this pod, I have to give her a shout out there. But take us on a tangent, Caleb. Okay, y'all. I, uh, I've been feeling a bit reflective lately. And so Ooh. I know my tangent's going to be a little different. So, okay. you know, I really like this time of year. You know, you got three holidays all in the span of like two months, maybe. And it just feels for me, for me personally, it always feels like a festive, just a good time with family and friends and whatnot. I always, I always have a good feeling when this time of year comes. And, you know, this is the week of Thanksgiving. We don't have to talk about the holiday specifically, but I do want to just shout out you two for being awesome co-hosts for the past year. You know, one of the most consistent things uh, for me every single week has been getting on, getting on our uh, little recording software and talking to you two about the issues every single day and laughing and just having a good time. And so that's about it. I just wanted to say how grateful I am for the both of you. And I hope you two have a wonderful holiday season. Caleb. Gross. No, okay, sorry. <laughs> Fuck him. That was so very, Gross. very kind and very sweet. And I I I just want to echo that and say that I know I'm very, very grateful for both of you and as not just as, you know, co-hosts, but as as friends as well. Um and the support that you've offered me over the last year with just so much going on um in life. And I am grateful for the opportunity to intellectually and creatively have this outlet with both of you and to to learn from you um and see the passion come through you both as well. So you know, I am wishing you both a very happy Thanksgiving and I'm grateful to have you both in my life. More gross. You guys making it sound like one of us is about to die and we're giving a eulogy of like, oh, he was such a great friend, isn't that? Like we show up together every <laughs> we show up together every Tuesday. Like obviously I appreciate you. I care about you guys. <laughs> I thank you. It's just ugh, gross. This time of year is for clapbacks only. Oh my gosh. For the record, this is absolutely how I expected Terrell to respond. And that's uh, that's why I love him so much. Yeah, it, no, it's literally not news to the listeners that uh Terrell no, is emotionally stunted. Uh <laughs> emotionally I'm very emotionally capable. That's why I'm not here like, oh my god, thank you so much. Like oh, Brittany, not Brittany, <laughs> who am I thinking about? Like Kim K crying because she dropped her earring in the ocean. Like, yes. I showed that I care about you by being here. What more do you want or need? Again, this is the holiday for clapbacks, for stuffing your face, <laughs> having a little alcohol, a little drama. Give thanks to your mama on your birthday. Like, I don't know. What? <laughs> okay, well, what I'll say is um, thank you to our listeners for, for sticking with us. And yes. um, we, yes. we are grateful for you. Um, and we're grateful that especially you continue to tune in with Terrell's behavior. Um <laughs> And on that note, especially boy, bye. <laughs> I'm Terrell. Oh. <laughs> I'm Caleb, and I'm Torrance. 
It were dangerously likely. To see you next week. To see you next week.